Amen. I'm turning once again back to the text we just looked at together and read through in Acts 13. And I want to draw your attention uh, beginning there in verses 32 and 33. Acts 13, verses 32 and 33. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which has, was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Our subject this morning is the glad tidings of the resurrection. The glad tidings of the resurrection. The very resurrection of Christ is the foundation upon which our entire belief is founded upon. To remove the resurrection, to discard it, to discount it, would be to bring the foundation of even Christianity to absolute shambles. But to Jesus himself, he directed his disciples as he walked with them and ministered to them through those number of years he was with them. And he reminded them and began to reveal to them that there was coming a day when this resurrection day would come. Of course, the resurrection would have to be preceded by a death. It would have to be preceded by him actually giving up his life on a cross. As we've mentioned over the last couple of weeks, Christ's death was unthinkable to the disciples. They, they were just not capable of comprehending how he was going to go away. This past Wednesday evening, we looked at the last farewell address of Christ to his disciples and how he began to unfold to them what was getting ready to take place. And sadly, we have this belief system that the disciples were taking this all in. They were nodding in agreement. They were nodding in understanding. But no, they were confused. They could not understand where was he going? How long was he going to be gone? And maybe ultimately the question was, why? Why did he have to leave them? And I made mention of this Wednesday that think about what it would be like to have somebody who is so near and dear to us suddenly announce to you they're going to be gone and it's going to happen within a number of hours. It's going to happen quickly. Jesus had been preparing them for the very event that was going to take place. He had been telling them to look forward to these things. And he'd also remind them that after all of this took place, he wanted them to look for him that he would provide evidence that exactly what he had said was true. The resurrection is not something that is hidden. It is not an event that is out of plain view. As a matter of fact, the scripture is full of references. It's full of prophecies. It's full of types and pictures that declare that this resurrection was going to happen. And it was very clear that the resurrection would be the Messiah. We can testify this morning with full assurance that the resurrection was indeed a factual event. Uh, we don't have to question whether or not it actually happened or not. The Bible declares that he did raise from the grave. It's important to understand that Jesus Christ actually did die. There was an actual death and the death was required for the atoning sacrifice of Christ to be received by the Father. He had to die. And his death would lead to a resurrection. We have the fullest assurance this morning that Jesus Christ did raise from that grave. 
we have the fullest assurance this morning that the Bible tells us that there was a select number of individuals who were chosen by him for the very purpose of bearing witness that this event actually took place. People often say, well, if I could read an eyewitness account of the, of the resurrection, I would believe it. You have an eyewitness account. You have well over 500 people who saw him. You have an account. If you don't believe, it's because you don't believe the Word of God. You don't believe that which is the only source of truth. I want the truth. I don't want somebody bearing to me false witness. I want the truth of what actually happened. The only place I can find truth is in God's Word. That's how I know the resurrection is real. And you say, well, preacher, I don't believe the Bible. Therein displays the hardness of your heart that says, I refuse to believe the Bible. I will not believe, much like we read Thomas. He said, unless or except I can put my fingers into the prince in his hand and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. I think I mentioned this Wednesday, how touching that is that Jesus at that moment did not condemn him. He actually invited him to do so, but he made a very important statement after that. He said, blessed are those who believe without seeing me. There is that blessing of faith. To believe in a resurrection that you did not bear witness to, to believe in a Christ you've never seen face to face, but to believe it as if you witnessed it with your own eyes. Again, even Paul himself did not have the same advantage that those original disciples had. We know scripturally that that the Lord appeared to him in a vision sometime after that, but yet he still had the picture or the view of this resurrection. In our text, we see that these truths are defined in verse 32 as glad tidings and the promise which was made unto the fathers. The resurrection is glad tidings, and it's a promise. God, who cannot lie, always keeps his promises. And the resurrection was a promised event. It was an event that said would take place, and it took place exactly the way the Bible declared it would be. The man or the woman who argues with the scriptural account who says, I would rather have a man's point of view from it alone is denying the reality that when we see the scripture, we are actually seeing man's account of it. We live in an age of prove it to me. We live in an age that says, I will not believe unless I can handle it. I will not believe unless I can see it with my own eyes. These truths are not truths you're going to see with your physical eyes. They are truths that you have to see with spiritual understanding. And there may very well be here some this morning who say, I do not understand these truths. Some of it is because you refuse to understand. You refuse to acknowledge. You refuse to believe. And as we say often, our prayer ought to be, God, help my unbelief. And what I would say to you that are in the faith this morning, you who are saved, I would say, even as we're going through this scripture this morning and you're being fed by the word of God, I would pray that your prayer for those around you, if there's someone here who is not believing, would be, God, help their unbelief. Praying for individuals who might be seated here this morning. That they would believe. 
Because we know salvation is of the Lord and unless God opens those eyes, man is not going to open them, but God in His providence and sovereignty can. If you're saved, He opened your eyes. I always take comfort in knowing that someone was praying for me, I'm sure. These disciples and those even in the book of Acts, as they stood up and they reminded, and Paul as he speaks and reminds them of, says, give audience to what I'm saying. Back in that text that we read in verse 16, says Paul stood up and it says he beckoned with his hands. In other words, I don't know exactly what his beckoning was, but it may have been a simple motion of come and give, give ear, give audience. You know, Man will give audience to just about everything. Put something entertaining in front of people and you'll gain an audience. Put something that amuses someone, you'll gain an audience. But Paul stood up and beckoned with his hand and he said, Men of Israel and ye that fear God, give audience to what I'm about to say. And he begins in the beginning and he goes all the way through how the promises were made to the patriarchs, how it was made to Israel, how he delivered them. And through the times of 40 years of wandering, he, in his patience, he suffered them and he, he put up with their hard heart. He put up with their stiff-necked response to him. And all throughout history, they begged for a judge and he gave them judges. They begged for a king. He gave them a king, we see. And then... He moves on to John. John the Baptist came preaching repentance. He came and declared that I am not he who you should look for, but I am the one who comes before him. I am preparing the way for the Messiah that would come. You realize all of these things were prophesied long before they ever happened. If I predicted something that would happen this afternoon accurately, you'd call me a genius or just very lucky. These prophecies all came true. There is not a single one that has failed nor will fail. Not a single Old Testament prophecy regarding Christ's coming and the Messiah has failed or faltered. He has come exactly as he said he would. John comes forth. John fulfilled his course, it's told us back in verse 25. Verse 26, men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of salvation sent. You who are seated here today, who are unsaved, the word of salvation is being declared. It's being sent. It's not my message. It's not my word. It's the word of God. Repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not asking you to put your faith in this church. I'm not asking you to put your faith in me. I'm not asking you to put your faith in your spouse, your children, your family. I'm asking you to repent of your sins, believe on Jesus Christ, and put your full trust and faith in Him. And if you sit here hard-hearted, beg God to help your unbelief. Plead with God to save you. And then Paul returns to the account. He reminds us of what happened with Pilate. Verse 28 says, Though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. 
I won't assume you know the account. There could be people here who do not know the account. But as Jesus is sent to stand before Pilate, Pilate, of course, is in a bit of a quandary. He is, he is a, a, a Caesar. He is a leader. He finds no fault in Jesus. He finds no reason why this man should be crucified. And he tries every avenue he can to remove himself from that situation. But yet it's found that he asks who should be released. And he brings out a criminal, Barabbas, and he brings out Jesus, and he puts them before the people. And instead of screaming for Jesus' release, they scream, crucify him, crucify Jesus, he who is, has no cause in him, no finding of fault in him, crucify him. Folks, you realize in many, many ways, the unbeliever, the unsaved, were much like Barabbas was. We are set free. We didn't deserve to go free. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for the sin in which we were guilty of committing. It is His sin, our sin, that sent Him to the cross. Not His sin, our sin sent Him to the cross. We were allowed to go free. Jesus submits to the will of the Father. Verse 29 says, When they had fulfilled all that was written of Him, again, the prophecy said exactly how Jesus' crucifixion would go. You can read all the way into the Psalms and read the Messianic Psalms, especially Psalm 22, that tells us exactly how this crucifixion would be, down to the fact that it would say not one of his bones would be broken. And that is significant because nearly every single person who was crucified on the cross, they broke their legs to quicken the death process. By the time they even thought about it, he had already given up the ghost. The time had come. Christ gave up the ghost. He died on that cross just as the Scriptures said He would. It says they took Him down from the tree and laid Him in a sepulcher. And the glorious truth of verse 30, but God raised Him from the dead. Not from sleep. Not from unconsciousness. From the dead. To be resurrected means to be given life again. To be brought from death, Jesus was brought. And here's your eyewitness accounts. And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you, Glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. The glad tidings of the resurrection are first and foremost the glad tidings of an accomplished prophecy. Paul quotes Psalm 2-7. When he makes mention here, when it says, in him, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second Psalm, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Keep in mind that the Psalms, even in the Apostle Paul's day, were arranged in the very same order as they are today. And the very scope of Psalm 2 is to declare the triumph that Jesus would have over all his enemies by the very means of his resurrection from the grave. Psalm 2 was speaking about the victory Christ would have when he burst forth from that grave. 
and that God the Father would declare, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Not only do we have an eyewitness testimony of those who saw Him in His resurrected body, but we have a testimony of the strongest and most powerful testimony of God Himself. God the Father testified that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Believe Him. This is My Son. Those of you that see the Lord today, you see Him not just a mere man, but you see Him as the Son of God. You see Him as the living sacrifice. You see Him as the atoning work. You see His righteousness alone is what allows us to stand before a holy God. You see, the resurrection was accomplished prophecy. It was foreordained by God. It was foretold in many ways. Sometimes we see the resurrection in Scripture being illustrated in type. Sometimes we see it in prophecies. Sometimes we see it uh, in, in other means. But even the very story, which sadly becomes much like the ark and Noah's ark, the story of Jonah. Jonah swallowed up by this big fish. On the third day, he is raised again from the belly of the fish. This is a demonstration of the resurrection. This is not just a cute story. This is a picture of resurrection. You see, the Scriptures are filled with the evidence that the resurrection was and is and will always be the very foundation of what we believe. And the Bible's been telling us so. For generations. It's amazing to me that 500 or more years ago, there have been preachers who have stood behind pulpits, they've stood in places, they've stood in public. There's been the evangelists of the Great Awakening who've stood up in places and they would, they would stand in the middle of a field and they would beckon with their hand like the Apostle Paul did, listen to what I'm saying, give audience to my words. And right now we have so many sounds that are drowning it out. So many things we're giving audience to, but we're not listening and we're not seeing the truth that's right in front of us. We're giving all of our time to those temporal things that are not going to matter. We're spending all of our time on things that ultimately the Bible says are going to burn up. They are going to disappear. Everything we're putting our effort and our time in that you see on this earth is not going to last. But your soul, folks, you are going to live somewhere forever, eternity, in one of two places. You are not going to an in-between, a false place called purgatory. There is no such thing. You are either going to heaven or you are going to hell. And it will not be because God is unjust. It will be because you stiffened your neck and refused to believe the truth that is right out in front of you. So I won't believe. I won't. And the realities are, Give audience to the Word of God today. 
The accomplished prophecies alone are glad tidings because the prophecies not only tell us about who we are and what we would be apart from Christ, but that there is a glorious promise of a resurrection to those who put their faith and trust in Christ alone. The Bible speaks, will man listen to what the Scriptures say? Number two, as far as these glad tidings, we also understand that these glad tidings are glad tidings to the anguished, discouraged soul. As we made mention on Wednesday evening, the disciples, no doubt, when they began to see things unfold, I would say were probably hard to console. It was hard to find comfort with them. I think that's also one of the reasons why Jesus used the terminology. He used the word, if I go away, I will send a comforter. He knew there was something about this that was going to be very difficult for them to deal with. A very hard truth. He said, yeah, I'll send a comforter to you. When Jesus went away from his disciples, we know how the story goes, or I will assume we know how the story goes. When Jesus finally is taken in the garden, we know that Peter is the one who's declared to, quote-unquote, put up a fight. And he reaches for a sword and he slices off the man's ear. And Jesus, in a way that only he could, miraculously picks that ear up off of the ground and he puts it back. And he instructs Peter that this is not the way. This is not the way. And that what's getting ready to happen must happen because if it does not happen, then all of the promises and everything that has been said to this point would have been for nothing and it would have all been a lie. Just like the false narrative that Jesus Christ ever once considered not going to the cross is simply not true. Or that while he was hanging there that he said, you know what, I'm, th- I'm rethinking this. I think I'll go ahead and call those angels and have them get me down. That's unthinkable. It's unthinkable because had he done that, he would have been disobedient to his father. It would have unraveled the entirety of Bible history if he would have said, I've changed my mind. Now we could emphasize what happened when Jesus was taken. No doubt there were accounts on television last night that demonstrated all the sufferings that Jesus went through. And there is no doubt that he went through unspeakable things. He went through things that even Hollywood, the producers, cannot reproduce. As badly as they do it and as hard as they try to replicate the gore and replicate how awful it was, they will never be able to fully comprehend what's happening because even with physical eyes... You can watch that and you will feel compassion. You will be cut to the heart. But that does not mean that you're brought to saving faith. See, it's not just an acknowledgement that Jesus went through all these things. We have to understand what was he doing? Why was he going to leave his disciples? Why was he going through all these things? Why did he, in effect, have to die? He had to die to pay the appropriate price for our sin. The appropriate price for your sin is death. 
Not your bank account. Your bank account means nothing. I don't care how many zeros you have. Or if you have zero. It doesn't matter. Your, that has nothing to do with it. The payment required for your sin and for my sin is the death of a spotless lamb of God. Much as the Passover in the Old Testament tells us, the Passover lamb, when the death angel came after the plagues and all the warnings of Moses, when he came to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh refused to let God's people go, and you know he sent all sorts of plagues, and the very last one was about the death angel. And that he would come forth, and whoever did not have the blood upon the doorpost, it would take the life of the firstborn. The blood of that Passover blood that had to go on there had to be from a spotless lamb without blemish. It pictured what Jesus Christ would have to do. Jesus Christ provides glad tidings to the anguished soul by the virtue of His sacrifice because had Christ not risen, then His death would have been in vain. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, an entire chapter is given over to the realities of what was happening here and why these things are so of such great spiritual importance. If you'd like to turn there, 1 Corinthians 15, and look with me at verse 14. We, we cannot cover everything that chapter 15 deals with. But notice what Paul was writing about this resurrection and the death. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. <clears throat> well, actually, let's look at verse 12. He says, Now if Christ be preached that He rose from the dead, how say some of some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that he, that the dead rise not. You realize the very thing I'm doing today, he is saying if the resurrection's not true, then I am a liar today. And I am lying to you. If Christ didn't raise from the grave, I'm the biggest liar you've ever met. But he did raise from that grave. And I can tell you with certainty, there is no lie in the word that I am saying. You can say, have you seen the tomb? No, I haven't been within a thousand miles of it. They say, do you want to go see it? I guess it would be alright if I saw it. But it wouldn't change a thing. It would not change a thing because I understand that Scripture says He did raise from the grave. And if He didn't, then my entire faith is in vain. Notice what he says in verse 18. Not only would everyone who's ever preached and proclaimed the resurrection be a liar, look what he says in verse 18, then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. That means every single person who's ever heard this word died in their sins and hell is filled. Every single person's gone to hell. You realize the implications of this, right? If there's no resurrection, there is nobody in heaven. Everybody is in hell. That's the implications that the resurrection isn't true. Yet Paul was convinced when he wrote to the church at Corinth 
that this, in fact, was the case. We would have no evidence of our salvation had Christ not raised from the grave. His resurrection proves that Christ's sacrifice satisfied fully and completely the demands of what God's justice required. And that is the very ground of our hope today. And that's why I can sing those hymns with triumph. I don't sing them as just words on a page. I sing them as somebody who knows them to be true. The unbeliever can't sing those hymns with understanding, even those hymns. When we sing up from the grave, we're not talking hypothetically. We're singing that as fact. And knowing that up from the grave proves the satisfaction that God the Father was when he received the offering of Christ. Paul gave hope to this even in the, to the church at Rome. If you'll turn over to Romans chapter 4. These glad tidings are all over the Scriptures. Uh, Romans 4, verses 23 through 25. It says, Now it was not written for His sake alone that it was imputed to Him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on Him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Now, Paul, we didn't see the full reference, context here, but Paul is making reference to Abraham and Abraham's faith and how Abraham, Abraham did not stagger at the promises. He believed in the promises of the Messiah. And he didn't stagger at them. It was the very ground of his hope is that he knew that he could trust what God was saying. In Romans 8.34, Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again. Notice Paul didn't make the mistake of just simply saying it's Christ that died. He says, but rather, don't forget this truth, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Folks, the virtue of His sacrifice is the very ground of our hope. His sacrifice did not just make salvation possible. It accomplished your salvation. That's the testimony of every believer is Christ saved me. Secondly, with regard to this tidings to the anguished soul, not only the virtue of His sacrifice, but His sufficiency for our help. If Christ is still dead, it is absolutely vain for you to look to God for any help at all. If Christ didn't raise from the grave, you're wasting your time praying to God for help. Because there's no God hearing you. You're wasting your time if He did not raise from the grave. There is no one to look for. But the Bible says in John chapter number 10, Jesus' own words, and this is glorious, John 10 verses 17 and 18. Of course, John 10 is the, uh, the, the high water mark, if you will, of Christ declaring who His sheep are, who belong to Him, and how His sheep hear His voice. But He makes a declaration about His own resurrection which is just glorious. John 10, verse 17, he says, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man 
taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Folks, don't ever get the idea that Christ died in some kind of helpless, overtaken fashion. He voluntarily gave up his life. I've seen so many bad depictions of this. I've seen so many Christians tell me, look, I saw this wonderful film. And I'm like, do you realize how false that whole narrative is? Do you re- are we as Christians actually seeing what really happened here? Or are we trying to turn this into something that just promotes a better storyline? When the time had come, he allowed himself to be taken. He allowed himself to receive every stripe he received. He allowed himself to all these things to go to the cross. And at the appointed time, they didn't kill him. He gave up the ghost. He gave it voluntarily. Why did he give his life up, according to John 10? So that he could take it back again. There was never a doubt. So when we see that account of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and Jesus walks up behind them, and I'm paraphrasing, and he says, who are you talking about? And they say, we've seen terrible things today. He was supposed to raise from the grave, but he's walking right behind them. They didn't even know it was he. Even those disciples were struggling with the reality, was this resurrection real? And yet, it is he who raised himself from the grave. Not only by him raising himself from the grave, but the Bible actually tells us in Colossians 2, verse 15, that by his resurrection, he spoiled all the principalities and the powers of hell. Folks, do you realize when we live in this fear of the devil, when we live in the fear of the princes and the powers of this air, Christ has already gotten the victory over every one of them. Not just in the future. But even now, his death has destroyed his burial, his resurrection has destroyed the power of Satan. If you want to turn over there with me, look at Colossians 2. When Paul was writing to the church at Colossae about this, and he's writing this within the context of an entire chapter, when he declares in verse number 3, in whom that's Christ, are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. He wanted them to know that everything there is to know about God and all the treasures is found in Christ. And in verse 15, or verse 14, here's what it says. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Christ's death conquered and destroyed the spiritual powers of evil. Because he lives, because he rose again, we do not have to feel fear the evil of this world. We are not supposed to be cowering as if we do not have victory. We are giving Satan way too much credit, way too much credit for the problems that we're having because we're giving him too much. He is a defeated foe and he knows it. 
When Christ went to that cross and died and was buried and rose again, he defeated him. And again, is he going to stir up trouble? Absolutely. Is he going to try to accuse you? Again, we mentioned this Wednesday. Is he going to come up and accuse you of still being a sinner? And I've said this over and over again. When Satan accuses you or one of his demons says, you're still a sinner, say, you got that right, I am a sinner, but it's covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. He's, now he's, he's telling you what you are. You are a sinner. But you tell him, but I'm saved by the merits of Christ alone. And part of that is his resurrection declares it to be. Christ is exalted for the very purpose that he would be a prince and a savior. Acts 5.31 makes reference that he would be a savior to give repentance to Israel and the remission of sins. He's declared by the God Father Himself that He is the Son of God with power. Romans 1.4. Hebrews, uh, uh, Hebrews 7 verse 25 declares that He is able to save us to the uttermost. In Philippians 3 verse 10, Paul declares that his only desire was to seek to know Christ in the power of His resurrection. That's what he sought to know. Because of his resurrection, there is the certainty of our own resurrection. And this is heading number three. The glad tidings of our assured resurrection. Our resurrection depends entirely upon his resurrection. Had he not risen, we will not rise. But because he rose from the grave, those who are in Christ will rise again. Back in 1 Corinthians 15, we'll turn there quickly again. Look at verse number 20. We just, we just started to touch on this when we turned here a few moments ago. But now is, verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. That gives us the very order of the resurrection. Christ's resurrection guarantees that the resurrection of all of his children will indeed follow. Folks, we're assured of that. We're assured of it because that is what he has declared would be the case. Christ has gone to heaven. John 14 says he's gone to prepare a place for us and he will come again. We can consider His death. We can consider the grave. And we can look forward to the triumph that is coming. There is a day coming when everything will, all enemies of the cross will be put under His feet. In that same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52, or verse 51, it says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Notice the language Paul was using here. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. 
O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Now I'm asking you that are believers this morning, do you believe these next two verses? But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you believe that, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Paul reminds us, because he lives, we shall live also. If you'll go back with me as we bring this to a close, go back to Acts 13. I want to read just a couple of verses beyond the text that we took. And I want you to look down with me at verse 38. Even as we were reading this, I began thinking about our own condition today and our own situation that could be present here this morning. In verse 38 of Acts 13, he says, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold, ye despisers, and wander and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. The truth is right in front of you. The gospel of Jesus Christ alone has been declared over and over and over again this morning. The way of salvation is through Jesus Christ. The promise of salvation, the promise of our resurrection is because he who died for our sins has also rose from the grave. And I implore you in the moments, don't get caught up in the ending time, but simply consider, do you believe these truths? Do you believe that Christ is the only way? Would you repent of your sins and believe in Christ alone, trusting Him only for your salvation? The hard-heartedness of man has been since the beginning of time. Every generation has had people who have heard the gospel. They've heard it over and over and over again. And they've left each time saying, I refuse and will not. I will not believe. And folks, I know this is not popular anymore. It shouldn't be a popular subject anyway. But if you die without Christ, I cannot put this, I am not going to sugarcoat this, I'm not going to water it down. If you die without Christ today, you will spend an eternity in hell separated from Christ forever. There is no two ways about this. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I believe that with every fiber of my being. I believe that from the, the top of my head to the soles of my feet. There's not an ounce of me that does not believe that. And I don't believe for a second that if you come to Christ, He will turn you away. He is not going to turn you away if you come unto Him. But if you step out into eternity today without Christ, don't blame my Lord for it. 
Christ is calling unto you. Repent of your sins and believe. Plead with God. Help my unbelief if that's what you're struggling with. These glad tidings are glad tidings to those who believe. But sometimes in the Bible, glad tidings have the opposite effect to those who refuse to believe. That which is good news to us is condemnation to another. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore no more condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The believer in Christ will never, ever, ever face condemnation. I will never be back under the wrath of God for my eternal soul. I am never going to be separated from Him and sent to a place called hell because once I'm in Christ, nothing can separate me from His hand. And again, I'm thankful He's holding mine. He's holding me. It's not me holding on to Him. Because as I've said, and I'll keep saying it till I die, if He leaves it up to us, every one of us is letting go. Every one of us is saying, I don't want this. Christ saved you. And if He saves you today, it will be according to His way only, not according to anything else we can do. The very scope of the Gospel is to declare the good news, declare good tidings, to proclaim not just a crucified Lord, but a crucified, buried, and raised from the death Raised from the grave, exalted Savior, who now Christ is at the right hand of the Father, even at this very moment, ever living to make intercession. Some of us today, prayerfully all of us, leave here rejoicing over those glad tidings. But I plead with you today, if these are not glad tidings to you, I ask you again, Repent of your sins and believe on Christ. And leave here a child of God. The glad tidings of the resurrection. I trust that for you today, that is the greatest news that you've ever heard. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's finish by singing the hymn in just a moment. We'll pray. But if you would, go ahead and grab your songbook and turn to page 200.